start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And with us today is the creator of... The, you're pointing at me. <laughs> Mars Rover Rescue. Which is a children's book about a Mars exploration. Welcome to the show, Andrew Rader. Thank you very much. Me. This is really neat. We don't get to talk to uh, the creators of children's books very often. And we should because science fiction is for all ages. But it's not something that tends to come up uh, with respect to, to children's books very much. Uh, well, IO9 actually called it a uh, science fiction picture book, mm. art sci-fi picture book, which it is. I think it's good for adults as well. It is alphabetical and rhyming, so mm-hmm. it's kind of definitely more oriented towards kids, but I think adults would get a kick out of it as well. It is so stinking cute. <laughs> of course, with a name I like mine, I'm... a I'm, great TV series, actually. I would really like to turn it into a sort of Star Trek for kids where they go and sort of rescue ships from black holes and all kinds of things, fight off robots and all, you know, have it science, really hard sci-fi adventures. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it is a member of what we call uh, STEM, actually, a science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, and, and many add arts to that, so it would be STEAM instead of STEM. And uh And it's for it's certainly interracial. There's giraffes, pandas, <laughs> you know. Well that's right. So we had a request to put female characters in because mm-hmm. the first book we just had a giraffe and it was a guy. It, it was just because he was a rapper, it just happened to be that way. Um and we took off the gold chains and the ghetto blaster, but mm. um he ended up just being a space explorer, but then we had a lot of requests, hey, you should put female characters in it. So we said, oh, we're definitely doing that. And obviously we wanted different animals. And at some point, there's actually a crew introduction page and we're thinking about putting place of origin, like country of origin. Mm-hmm. So like the zebra was going to be from Botswana, for example. Uh, the panda was going to be from China. Mm-hmm. But we decided that let's just let the kids use their own imagination. But that, cer- that sort of idea of... Uh, Diversity definitely was in our minds. Yeah, well, it, it's it's great, you know, with a panda. He, he's he's black, he's white, and Asian. 
Well, it's a, it's a girl actually, and she's well a lady, mm-hmm. and her name is Shaw, which means like rising dawn or something. And it's it's really appropriate for Mars actually. It's it's a word that you would even use to describe the sunset or or dawn on Mars. So, and it's a common Chinese name. So, um, tell us about the first book and how you came to the point where you were going to create a children's science book. Well, he has a giraffe astronaut. Right. So the first book is Epic Space Adventure, and it's a tour of the solar system. And it has the giraffe astronaut and robot. They go and visit all the planets and moons. So they go sequentially, although they start at Earth, and then they go back to the sun and then hop through everything. So they go Mercury, then Venus, then Mars, asteroids, Jupiter, and they stop at a lot of the moons. So what I was trying to convey is that the solar system is a really interesting place. Most sci-fi that you see is people going between solar systems. So in Star Trek, they go throughout, say, 10% of the galaxy, and they're hopping between stars Mm -hmm. faster than the speed of light. And while that's possible in our future, and I hope we will get there, there's a lot of nearer-term sci-fi that isn't really covered by any of our uh, themes. And mm-hmm. I think that Arthur C. Clarke did a really good job of this. But there's this, this hole almost in sci-fi. I guess The Martian sort of did it, but that's very near-term. <laughs> uh-huh. but, but I kind of picture sci-fi in the next – hundred years, or actually in this case, actual science, what we're going to be doing is going and exploring and setting up bases on Io and Europa and Ganymede and Callisto. Actually, Io is a pretty bad place to do it. Lots of volcanoes and lots of radiation from Jupiter, but uh, so the moons of the solar system anyway, and possibly Mercury. Like for example, Mercury is not as hot as Venus because it doesn't have a thick atmosphere. Venus has a runaway greenhouse effect and traps all the hot air there. So Venus is way, way hotter than Mercury, but Mercury has basically no atmosphere. At the poles, you can actually get ice on Mercury. So Venus is the only place in the solar system with no ice, except for the sun, obviously. Which surprises me. I was surprised to find out that Venus is actually about 120 degrees on uh, on average hotter than Mercury is, despite being so much further from the sun. Shows you the power of an atmosphere. Absolutely, because the far side of Mercury is really cold, actually. It shows you that if there's no air, then you don't get heat transfer. So that means that it's all based on radiation. So if it's facing, if it's on the side facing the sun, it's really hot. And if it's facing away from the sun, it radiates out into deep space, and it's really cold. And that's actually one of the things about space, too. People think space is cold, and it is. It's basically absolute zero or pretty close, but that doesn't matter because there's no air. So there's there's three methods of heat transfer, conduction, convection, and radiation. Mm-hmm. And because there's no air in space, you don't get convection, so you don't get air coming and taking away heat. And because you're not touching a, another object, um, you're not getting conduction. So if you're just floating around in space, all you have is radiation. Mm-hmm. And that means that you're going to be hot if you're facing the sun or a heat source, and you're going to be cold if you're facing away. So... In space, like this is a big concern for satellites in space. It's not that things get cold in space. They do, but they also get hot, and it totally depends on their conditions. So if they're in a shadow of Earth, in eclipse behind Earth, mm-hmm. then they actually get cold. And so you have to look at 
when's it going to be hot? When's it going to be cold? And how do you transfer heat throughout the structure to make sure it ma- maintains some kind of equilibrium? Well, the men walking on the moon learned that one because there's no air there either. So things well, right. so, get like, very warm ooh. during the day. That's right. That's right. So the moon has a 14 day, uh, day night cycle, 14 day, uh, night time, daytime cycle, which means it's actually really bad for growing plants. Whereas Mars, because it's 24 and a half hours is similar to earth. So plants, you know, would have a similar day, day night cycle. Um, and the moon, because there's no atmosphere, a very, very, very tenuous one. It means that you're effectively in space. You're just kind of standing on a rock in space, meaning you have the same heat effects. And if you're in shadow, it's very cold. The other thing is, though, you do actually have conduction. So mm-hmm. because you're touching the surface of the moon and the surface of the moon is is really cold, it's like this gigantic, really cold rock. And that actually can suck heat away. So that's another effect. Your feet might get cold, for example, even if you're hot, like even if you're standing in full sunlight and actually absorbing a lot of heat. Um, your feet can get cold, for example, because they're, they're touching the moon's surface, which is a very cold surface. Memo, wear extra socks on the moon. I had not thought of that. I hadn't thought of that possibility. But but uh, we, were, uh, we were working on a, a, a space opera and we're discussing actually some of the, the basic mechanics of how to deal with heat and dis, uh, getting rid of it and distributing it. And uh, it all comes down to pumping heat in and out of matter and then moving that matter around to wherever the heat is needed. You know? Yep. So, Absolutely. Like, for example, if you want to – if you have a, a great deal of heat in your spacecraft and you need to get rid of it, uh, you can uh, – if you can find a way to transfer uh, – you know, take a piece of metal and transfer a few thousand degrees of heat into it and then just – chuck that piece of metal out the window, you know, or out a, out a, uh, out an airlock or something. So uh, you, have run now, out. you have now dumped that heat. You've yeah. also dumped some matter. Yeah, I was about to say but, you might run out after a while. You... Mm-hmm. Well, so they also, what they do is they have radiators in space. So it basically is a big surface that radiates heat away. But you're right, you use like heat fluid heat transfer mechanisms, kind of like a refrigerator or an air conditioner transfers heat around, and then you can use a big radiator to actually dissipate heat. And they have cryogenic coolers, which actually take a lot of power. Like Kepler, for example, uh, Kepler Space Telescope had a cryogenic cooler, and uh, wait, 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 um, the infrared telescope, um, not Webb, what, what's the infrared one? Yeah, that had a cryogenic cooler anyway. Yeah. You know, to keep the uh, to keep the receiving element at, at at as low a temperature as they could possibly get, because of course you know, it, the whole point of infrared is that it is heat radiation. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So if you're going to record that, you need a receiving mechanism that's as cold as possible, so that you know you're not detecting yourself. That this is the whole exactly. Yeah, you know a great deal about this. You've obviously uh, you've obviously been immersing yourself in this for quite some time. When did when did it go from uh, a love of space exploration to making a children's book? How did that happen? So I, I guess I considered myself to be a teacher. I have a YouTube series on introduction to space orbits and rockets. So it's um, 
introduction to aerospace engineering. I mean, that's my background. I am an aerospace engineer, so that's kind of what I do for uh-huh. work. Uh-huh. And I really want to teach people about the universe and uh, kind of all kinds of things. Uh, I was originally thinking about writing a book about a duck who was afraid of water. That was the idea I had for a kid's book probably 10 years ago or something like that. A hygroscopic duck. (laughs) (laughs) Hydrophobic duck, right? Hydrophobic duck. Yeah, but hydrophobia has other implications. (laughs) That's true. Oh, what are that? Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, no, we were talking about... uh, Rabies, basically. (laughs) What what got you into... uh, um, where it, it, so you, how'd you get to space? Yeah, how did how did you get to yeah. uh, so this guy from there? This guy last year asked if I would help promote his video. It was about a wrapping space giraffe. What's and I his thought, name? well, it's great. I love the video. It's fantastic. And it was this giraffe astronaut, MC Longneck, and he was a, a very serious rap music enthusiast, and he had gold chains and the whole bit. And I thought this would be a really good basis for a kid's book, this draft, because he was fun, kid-like. And, I mean, the video was for kids. Mm-hmm. And so I just approached the illustrator. He, he is the illustrator, Galen Fraser, who uh, is has a real craft for making these illustrations about space. And he's a really big space enthusiast as well. His background is professional graphic designer. Mm-hmm. But he's a really big space fan, so it was kind of a perfect fit. And and so we just went from there. I basically just said, you want to do a kid's book on this topic and do an introduction to the solar system? Because I feel like people learn the names of the planets, but there's no context. They just think they're planets for no reason, you know, and they don't really see them beyond sometimes seeing them in the sky, probably don't even separate them from the stars. Mm-hmm. But they're real worlds, and they each have unique personalities. And that's kind of what I wanted to show. You know, some of the moons of the solar system, the icy moons like Europa, have the best prospects for life in the solar system. And probably in the universe, there's going to be a lot of places where these icy moons and not kind of Earth-like, in Star Trek terms, M-class planets will be actually Mm -hmm. the source for life. Like in Star Trek, the Andorians, their homeworld is a moon of a gas giant, just like Europa. Mm -hmm. It's uh, the recent probes, uh, I think it was the Dawn probe that, uh, you know, I'm completely drawing a blank here. Is that the the series? That's that's the series probe. Do you mean Philae with the comet? Oh, or do you mean Cassini with the gas giants? I'm. Uh, Which well, where did it go? Let's sort Horizon that out. Pluto. A probe that went where? Say that again, Andrew. New Horizon went to. New Horizon went out to Pluto. Yeah, I think it might have been New Horizon. What do you? What, it's, going I, where? I'm thinking about uh, uh, gas jets from the the South Pole of. Oh. Uh, you're that thinking was, of Enceladus. Enceladus, yes. Cassini. Yeah, the Cassini probe. And uh, uh, Enceladus uh, may very well have an ocean under that crust. And that uh, flying the probe through Enceladus's uh, gas jets in the South Pole may give us a taste of what's in there. 
I don't think it'll be very delicious. I don't think it'd be very delicious, though, do you? No. You know, (laughs) at at most, it's going to taste like frozen seaweed. But water is everywhere in the universe. Of course, it contains different, you know, precipitates and and, uh, solutes. But, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, Enceladus is actually on the cover of Epic Space Adventure. Mm -hmm. And it has sort of gas jets in it. Yeah, and it's just the prospect that... uh, a lot of these worlds that we thought were just big balls of ice are actually big balls of water with an ice crust. And that uh, there are mixes, yeah, there are mixes of different types of ice. There's not just sort of water ice, but um, CO2 ice sometimes and mm-hmm. uh, ammonia ice and rock. And you can tell what they're composed of by their density, which is, you know, if it impacts their orbit, so how much mass they have. Uh, per volume sort of affects the way they their trajectory around the gas giants. So you can tell what the composition is that way. Um, spectrometers also, you can use to tell what their composition is. And yeah, they're, they're really varied. And there's maybe, I think, around 10 worlds in a solar system where we think there are liquid oceans underneath. That's and a lot. Europe is probably the most interesting because it has hydrothermal vents probably at the bottom of the ocean, mm-hmm. which is the same situation on Earth. And we find those are really big sources of supports for life, uh, for ecosystems. Yeah, so there you are, have bacteria living mm-hmm. right off the chemicals. Yeah, there, ex, uh, there are extremophobe, uh, not extremophobe, what do they call that? Uh, extremophile. Extremophile, thank you. Uh, organisms that live around those vents and the entire... Uh, local uh, biosphere uh, um, ecology surrounding those vents exists based on the chemical energy that comes out of those vents and the heat and not sunlight. And uh, so if it could happen here, it could conceivably happen elsewhere. And if there aren't any there, do you want, do you think we ought to infect it? (laughs) Ah, Well, uh, chances are pretty good that anything we brought out from here wouldn't be able to survive there. But, well, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think I think that if you have those similar conditions, definitely things would be able to survive. But that's a really interesting question. A lot of people think that, for example, we shouldn't go to Mars because we're going to potentially contaminate it with Earth life. I think about the only thing that would survive – the only Earth life uh, that would – native Earth life that uh, we could bring up to Mars by accident would be – Micro – microscopic life. Tardigrades. Bears. Yeah, tardigrades. That's probably it. <laughs> well, if we can train them to, you know, put them through the, the, the NASA regimen, maybe they'll they'll report back to us. <laughs> well, the, the, the – it depends, it depends what kind of environment you're talking about because there's probably underwater reservoirs mm-hmm. on Mars that may be a lot more clement, might be – warmer and liquid water and kind of nicer mm-hmm. for life. So it, can, it really depends on what you're talking about. But certainly on the surface, it would be difficult for most Earth life to live. There might be some extremophiles that could survive. Whether they'd thrive is a different issue because lots of bacteria can go into kind of a spore where mm-hmm. they can survive for thousands of years, tens of thousands under like Antarctic ice and stuff like that. But it, it doesn't mean they're necessarily thriving. But even even on Earth, deep underground, Basically, in rock layers for you know miles underground, there are there, there's a lot of life, a lot of bacteria, a lot of microorganisms. 
we think that there's probably more life under the ground than above it. In fact, oh quite, possibly quite a lot more uh, life under underneath. Well, it's had a billion years to work its way down. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. But the one of the interesting things about tardigrades, uh, we had just seen the movie The Martian based on the uh, – uh, the book of based the same on the book title. by the same title, and and uh, one of the big problems is the hard radiation, you know, because of course Mars uh, does not have much of an atmosphere, and the reason it doesn't have it is because it also doesn't have much of a magnetic field. So the solar winds have been stripping away the Martian atmosphere for a long time, and of course the magnetic field isn't there to deflect the ions either. So just crashing a few comets is not into Mars is not going to help create an atmosphere because it'll just blow off. Right. But the, the background radiation on Mars is uh, several times what it is here on Earth. The interesting thing about tardigrades is that the reason they're able to withstand the high radiation is that their DNA is sheathed in extra protein that prevents it from being being damaged in high-radiation environments. So just wrap us up with more protein. Yeah, it's a So we'll just go, go wear a bacon suit. <laughs> a bacon suit. <laughs> a bacon yeah, you, suit. you could wear a bacon suit. It'd have to be pretty thick, though. I think it's about a meter of regolith, and I think bacon would shield in a similar way. <laughs> mm, yeah, I suppose there's that. So um, how long did it take from uh, I Want to Make a Children's Book to getting your first one done? Well, not that long. I mean, uh, so I wrote a book before that's a book for adults called Leaving Earth. It's about how and why we should go to Mars. So the children's book uh, from start to – I guess it took a year. Yeah, so we started it uh, – so this year's 2016. We put that one out at the end of 2015. We started it at the beginning of 2015 and so it took a year for the first book, uh, Epic Space Adventure. And then based on the popularity of that, it was pretty popular. So we decided to do a sequel and that took another year. So we're two years in now and I think we're going to keep going. I don't know exactly what we're going to do. We had some thoughts about doing a web series maybe or uh, I don't know, maybe try to appeal to slightly older kids. So this one's alphabetical and rhyming. So we might go a step up and just sort of track uh, the same cohort and I would love to do a cartoon about it but maybe uh, sort of a comic series or something like that with I just kind of picture it being like Star Trek and the animals are on the bridge and talking about different <laughs> uh-huh. space phenomenon and, and learning real science at the same time you know and trying to solve things and have like a villain or something like a robot because uh, AI is really big so mm-hmm. these days so maybe some kind of like robot army that they would have to tackle or something like that. I think the characters in your in your books would lend themselves very nicely to uh, to animation. Uh, you could certainly do flash animation with them, and it would come out, I think, very well, because they're already well-designed for something like that. South Park with more animals and less cussing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's see, you have the, uh, the giraffe, the panda, and what else? There's a um, zebra... And an elephant. And all of those are dark and light, black and white, or golden brown, and an elephant, which is 
neither black nor white. So there we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's like uh, a Star Trek episode. Yeah, yeah. And so well, I'm it, glad a, a space elephant is getting positive, uh, positive exposure here. There yeah, be, I think we. There should be sure, more which elephants are in space. Animals that are unique and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, at one point, I was thinking a, a snake might be. Kind of fun, but oh yeah! <laughs> How do you make a spacesuit for a snake? Oh, it's probably yeah, easier, be really. really interesting one, right? I oh, think yeah. actually it'd be super easy. It's kind of like a sleeping bag. Yeah, but then after that, the snake can't do anything, you know, because the snake requires. Uh, it has un- to be very. Animals, it has to be very flexible. It will. Un- yeah. Yeah. Unlike other animals, uh, snakes use uh, the difference between their muscles and. It's an it's a dynamic interaction between their muscles and their skin that allows them to crawl forward, mm-hmm. and you don't yeah. get that with a spacesuit. You'd isolate it, and the snake would be immobile. That's I'm, true. And I'm I'm still trying to work out the elephant one because her hands aren't that mobile, but her trunk is. Do you instead of a bubble helmet, do do you have a a trunk a flexible trunk sleeve? <laughs> No. Um, no. Okay. <laughs> though I was thinking that the elephant could, you know, not in the spacesuit, uh, be able to use his trunk for manipulating things. But um, in the spacesuit, I guess everyone's mobility is pretty restricted mm-hmm. in the spacesuits, and I guess the elephant would be especially so. <laughs> mm, yeah. Spacesuits are incredibly hard to work in. People don't realize just how stiff and rigid they are. Well, from the pictures, yep. the elephant looks like the pilot anyway, so she's not gadding about on the surface very much. That's true. Yeah, the elephant is the pilot. Yeah, no, spacesuits are basically big inflated balloons, and it's you know it's hard to bend a balloon. If you look at one of those party balloons that clowns turn mm-hmm. into animals, it actually takes a considerable amount of energy to bend. And those are, those are not at all pressured compared to spacesuits. I mean, spacesuits are pressured to... Um, sort of half atmospheric pressure, so up maybe mm-hmm. seven or eight or nine PSI. So that's a lot of pressure compared to a balloon. Uh, so they're very hard to move around. And gloves, for example, are the hardest thing to do um, any work in. It's, it's really tough to bend your fingers in a spacesuit. So you're probably better off just having like little excursion vehicles and uh, Waldos on the outside that you work from the inside for any of your fine work, huh? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, obviously, you want a vehicle that's really capable and has a cabin for long distances on Mars. That's why the Martian, I think, had something similar, and we have a mm-hmm. truck, basically. Um, your spacesuit might actually stay outside and kind of have some docking port that it would connect to the truck directly, and then you'd kind of get into the spacesuit from the back, something like that. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Some of the new spacesuit designs I've been seeing – uh, have this enormous hatch on the back, and you climb in, and uh, you bolt this hatch on behind you, and it looks like you know a, a an ast- a, an astronaut vacuum packed on a piece of cardboard. <laughs> yeah, you know exactly. And, and but that's the easiest way to get in and out of the suit. That's one of the really tough things about spacesuits. They take. Four, six hours. They take a long time to, to get into a spacesuit. Um, and actually, there's a new kind of spacesuit, mechanical counterpressure suit. Um, it's been around for a while, but it's, uh, the, the real problem with it is it's hard to take off and put on uh, because it's 
Mechanical counter pressure means that it's in direct contact with your skin. So instead of having a bubble of gas that presses on your skin to, you know, keep your insides in, this is like really tight spandex that presses all around your skin directly. And that's what we might use on Mars, but it has a lot of issues. The, the biggest one being that it's really difficult to take off and put on because it's, it's so tight. But if you could use some kind of smart material that you could electrify to mm-hmm. make it um, looser and then put it on and then sort of have it shrink wrap. Shrink wrap. Yeah, exactly. If you could do that, that that's something that might be a good idea. There are mod- there are materials that can change their physical properties depending on whether or not they have current applied. Oh, certainly. The question is whether you could use that to make a form-fitting spacesuit that would work mm-hmm. every time with exactly the right amount of pressure. And it's a tough task to do that. Yeah. So how did you go about uh, um, your crowdfunding campaign, your Kickstarter, uh, for the second book? It was, was set at $10,000. And you're currently, the last time I checked, you were at seventeen or 18000 and Which when is, we hear this in about four or five days, it'll be over over doubled. And that is oh no, a, I I did it. We actually had a really big um, surge in the last week because we had an article in Gizmodo. Ah, I know, that would a big be a sci-fi site, and they did a really good great write up on it. So that got a lot of attention, and we were really 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 happy about that. Um, and. Yeah, uh, just the the way they talk about the story, I'd highly recommend if you're interested at all in the book, you go and read the uh, io9 piece, which talks about how this book will make your kids want to go and colonize Mars. It's pretty much the Martian for kids, and I think that's right. Oh, I believe that. Actually, I'd, I'd kicked in for this for one of the larger sets so I could bring it to LostCon for their children's activities. So we will pass it forward to the geeklets of tomorrow. Oh, thank you. Fantastic. <laughs> I did not know we had done that. That's a, yeah, we, a great idea. We defined as me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the editorial we. Yes, we, uh, we often, uh, one or both of us often, often kick in on, on Kickstarters and, and crowdfund campaigns. Because let's for, face it, we want to cover things we like, <laughs> things that yeah. we think are, have got a future. Yeah, and, and books like yours, uh, these are things that just have to be made. They just have to be. You know, they 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 have a place in uh, they have a place in the world and in an important role to play. Um, you said earlier that you consider yourself a teacher. Uh, is this uh, is this something that has uh, defined you? Uh, as you as you go through your career, or is it something that you've you've discovered that you enjoy doing? Yeah, I think it has uh, defined me even before my career. I, I was a TA always in college and in, in university. Uh, sort of, yeah, I was teaching university classes while I was there, uh, doing a lot of tutoring and running lab experiments. Uh, and then I was a TA later on too as a grad student and I really wanted to be a professor. So mm-hmm. I thought my trajectory in life was to be a university professor. Um, and then 
I became really interested in other things, and so I never kind of got around to doing that. And I might eventually get back to that at some point. But you sort of, you know, you may have a goal in mind in life, but you're never going to go directly to that. And you kind of follow the doors that open. Um, so as you see a door that opens, you go through that door and then you may go down the hall and you may see another door and you <laughs> go through that door and you never know where life is going to lead. Uh, but certainly teaching is something I very much enjoy doing and, uh, just always want to do as much of it as possible because I think, I think that's sort of one of the, the enjoyments we really get out of life is being able to share our experiences with others and, you know, one of the ways to understand something is to teach it. And I think mm-hmm. that one of the ways to appreciate it together, a shared experience with another human is to talk about is to provide value to them and some information to them. And it's often the information flows both ways and it's a gratifying experience. This really comes out in, in your books. I mean, it's the books are so, uh, are so direct and speak right to the heart of the matter. I mean, it's, um, you know, of course it's a children's book. I am, uh, waxing lyrical. Yes, you are. About, uh, about a children's book about science. But, uh, I'm also interested in you know, yeah. using music as, as a way of getting the, the lesson across. You know, the hip hop world has been teaching kids stuff for a few years now. Like Hamilton. Like Hamilton. Oh my God. Our kid is suddenly very interested in American history. <laughs> Who yeah. knew? Yeah, because suddenly it matters. It's, it's all brought into context because of this music. So I think, uh, I think the idea of a, a rapping giraffe is kind of fun. You know, a very, very useful sort of vehicle for this kind of concept. Oh yeah, no, it's um, you can check that out on YouTube. It's a, uh, it's pretty fun little video, and it's it's really well done, and it sort it actually precedes the the first book, um, but it teaches kids again about the solar system, about space, and mm-hmm. uh, has some really interesting references too, and it's uh, it's it's really fun. Yeah. Well, let's hear some of that. Long neck, baby. Yeah. Strapped in for the countdown. Three, two, one, blast off, and we out now. Got the fuel tank totally full. We gotta make it past Earth's gravitational pull. We use jet propulsion till we're in the clear. First, we gotta pass through that troposphere. Now the stratosphere, then the mesosphere, then the thermosphere. Hit the gas, now we out of here. I think I see a satellite. Use a scientific method, cause I gotta get my data right. Look out the window when I make an observation. I can see the International Space Station. I see asteroids, and I see stars. And the very first planet that I see is Mars. And when it comes to moons, the Earth only has one. But Jupiter has a ton. At least 67. Out here in outer space, it's a really exciting place. I think I see a supernova on Mars, and we're rolling like the rover. Everything is a celestial. So, and this was the, uh, uh, this is the thing that you saw that gave you the idea that uh, you could work with him uh, to, to create a children's book. Or did you, did you see it first and then meet him afterwards or? Uh, how did you so crazy kids get together? Galen in person. Ah. I mean, chat by email a lot. Uh, and on the phone as well. 
but uh, we've never – he lives in Maryland and I live in California and mm-hmm. we've actually never met in person. And it, uh, we work very well together. He's he's kind of shy though. Uh, we had a request for a, a headshot, and he wasn't so sure if he wanted to to share it. And uh, but but uh, he, no, he should but draw Galen's one. Awesome. With. <laughs> he, could, he could draw a headshot. Would <laughs> <laughs> he him as a as a yeah. giraffe or a you know a tardigrade or any anything he wanted to be? So. Um, that let's see you have at this recording you have about eight days until the uh the kickstarter is done it is tuesday today uh we will be on the air on uh saturday night sunday afternoon and i think what is it by monday the whole thing should be wrapped up wrapped up wrapped up (laughs) (laughs) oh Uh, we wish you the best of luck reaching your stretch goals. We're very happy that you were able to uh, uh, spend the time with us here on the Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been speaking to Andrew Rader, the author of the children's books. The Epic Space Adventures and the Mars Rover Rescue. And the Kickstarter is running now. Do contribute if you... uh, if you happen to find it on Kickstarter, I think it would be a very worthy addition to. Oh, your... if you can find it, no, we will give them the directions there. <laughs> we will make sure that that if you if you check the website, uh, the Krypton Radio website, you will find uh, you will find the announcement article for this show, and you'll be finding the link to the Kickstarter there. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to episode 154 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for November 26th, 2016. There are only five more episodes for the 2016 broadcast year. Your hosts have been Gene Turnbow and Susan Fox, and our guest this evening has been Andrew Rader, author of the STEM children's book, Mars Rover Rescue. This episode will air again on Sunday, November 27th, 2016 at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our own website at kryptonradio.com as podcasts. If you would like to find out more about Andrew's book and its wildly successful Kickstarter campaign, please visit rover-rescue.com. Krypton Radio is substantially listener-supported, and if you enjoyed hearing the Event Horizon this week, please consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash kryptonradio. Just five green pieces of paper a month. That's all we ask. If you are an artist, writer, or other creator and you would like to appear as a guest on the Event Horizon, please contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at katcarter at kryptonradio.com. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Nevin. This program is copyright 2016 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated, except for those parts that are obviously copywritten by others. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. Well done.